Sheila Prebright uses photography to change the way we see the world. We identify people as quote-unquote other, minorities, poorer, immigrants, and then the media turns them into cultural stereotypes. Using headlines, stories, and images, the other then becomes the angry, the dangerous, the criminal. Sheila goes to the protests, the gatherings, and the neighborhoods of the other and takes pictures. Pictures that show them as bigger than the story, the biases, and the stereotypes. Pictures that show them as people. People in pain, people who are scared, people who are suffering and strong, hurt, and brave. She shows them as humans. Sheila knows what it's like to be on the outside. She was born into a military family and grew up in Germany, Colorado Springs, and Fort Riley, Kansas. As a photographer, she spends her adult life cultivating belonging. Sheila's photography is more than art. It's activism, change, and love. In Sheila's words, you can't see what's invisible. What I'm doing is showing you through art what I have seen through my eyes. Sheila's work has received numerous awards. She was the runner-up for the Million Dollar TED Prize. Her photographs have appeared in galleries and museums around the world, and she lectures all over the country. Her images break down old beliefs. They shake up stereotypes, and they help us all see the other for what the other truly is. A person. Just like you and me. Hi, I'm Daphne Cohn, and you're listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast, the practice behind the art, the story behind the artist. Today's guest is photographer Sheila Prebright. In this conversation, we talk about growing up different, using art as activism, the power of the lens to change what we see, what it means to be black in a racist America, how to build your own art business, and using social media to launch your career. May it inspire you to make your thing and change your world. Hello, Sheila. Welcome to the Creativity Habit Podcast. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being here. I always start with how creativity showed up for you as a little girl, but I actually want to be a little more specific than that. And I want to talk about, ask you about the fact that you were the daughter of a veteran and as a child moved around, you lived in Germany, Colorado Springs, Fort Riley, Kansas. And I wonder how that influenced your creativity and your work. I think that it has influenced my creativity very much. I didn't realize it until I started. I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know if I was going to be a creative at all. Um, my father always told me when I was small that I was going to do something creative, but he didn't know what it was. Um, I was very introverted as a child with my other siblings. I wouldn't play with them at all. And all I would do was stay in this room and I would just read books after books after books. I think I was always the curious child about people because through our travels, especially um, in my younger years in living in Germany, um, going to school in elementary school, I was always wondering why 
people would look at me a certain way and certain way and what I mean by this is this my mother would have us on the train and didn't know the language and people would come up to her and basically would ask her in their own language could they touch our hair or our skin and I always wonder why they want to touch your, 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 your skin and your hair I didn't really understand it until now as I gotten older you know and I've Grew up around a diverse group of people. And so my world was not just being around African-American culture. It was a lot of different cultures that I was around. And I think that has influenced my creativity and the type of work that I do. Okay, we're going to get into that. The first thing I want to ask, though, is you said your father always thought that you were going to do something creative. What Mm -hmm. was it? in you that he saw that led him to think that? I think what it was, was I was the odd child. I, every time we would move, the furniture wasn't in the house and it was a bunch of boxes. And all I would do was set everything up, make it straight. I don't know. It was, he just said it was something that he saw and he was so excited. He would buy me books all the time, whatever I wanted. He didn't speak a lot. It's just that I think he was more of an observer. And he just said, I think you're going to do something creative. And my mother told me that I was her odd child, <laughs> you know? So I don't well, know. That's interesting because you've often, you've also described yourself as an observer and as a photographer. That's definitely a big part of, of being a photographer, I would think. So it's interesting that your father, who you identify as an observer, saw that in you. It's both of you had that in common, that ability to see things in others that most of us might overlook. Yeah, I agree with that too, thinking back. I'm, you know, doing this for a while now, and my father has passed, I, I have a lot of reflections of me younger with my father and I can see that now because my father was the one that wherever we moved to he kept us in the museums he took us to the museums we had no idea what we were looking at but he kept us in the museums and I think that's another big part of it too he kept you in like all different kinds of like all different types of art museums well, I think it was just kind of the looking back, the major museums, I, especially in Germany, we would go to the museums and I would see these large portraits of what is it, 1900s, early 1900s, portraits of people that didn't look like me, didn't understand what I was looking at. But I think that had an influence on me because I love to photograph people and I love to take portraits, actually. You know, that's interesting that you would see these portraits and you didn't understand what you were looking at because these people didn't look like you. And people would come up to you and your family because they didn't understand what they were looking at. And Mm -hmm. they wanted to touch your skin, touch your hair. It's an interesting thing to see how curious we are about what we don't know people that we don't know or worlds that we we don't know. So you went after college, you left undergrad and moved 
to Houston, Texas. Correct. And decided that you wanted to photograph hip hop. So before I ask you about that piece of it, you said that you, you know, you love taking portraits. You love taking pictures. Were you taking pictures before college? Was this something you were drawn to? No, my story is, is that it wasn't until college, my last year in college, I took a photography course and because it was an elective. So photography found me. Okay. And I actually did a story on a teacher and it was following this teacher around at school, documenting the um, teacher. And that was my first experience in photography and from there how was that for you to be documenting to be following this teacher and documenting it gave me confidence because what i see i was able to express through the camera through the lens and i think the camera has allowed me to do that you know i do a lot of talking now but i'm extremely shy still but the camera allowed for me to talk and see the world is how I see the world or how I think that maybe the world should be, if I could say it like that. Yes, definitely. And that is a big piece of your work that we're going to get into. I want to back up to this idea that, so you're really shy and your work is almost exclusively, well, it hasn't been, but it is now portraits, which means you need to be going, engaging in conversation with people, all sorts of people. For the most part, they're, I'm assuming they're people you don't know. So how does your shyness factor into the conversations you need to be having with all of these strangers in order to photograph them? The camera is the one that gives me that tool to open up to people and I have a lot of compassion for people and you're right I don't know nobody the camera allows me to go and talk to the people I don't do not photograph just go out and pull out my camera and photograph I want to get to know the person have conversation with them so the camera is is, is my two that allows me to do that. If I did not have that camera, I would sit in a corner and observe you and will not say anything to you. So how, how does that conversation start? Let me give you an example. When I first started in photography and I left college and went to um, Houston, Texas, I was, you know, I guess being a... Um, and my a daughter of a soldier and, and living on what is it on the bases and stuff, there's a lot of stuff that we are not experienced and have not seen. And at that time, you had gangster rap going on. And I was really curious about that culture. And so what I would do is I, I in my mind I said I want to photograph rappers. So what I started doing, I started engaging and going into the community and started letting everybody know who I am, that they need any photographs, I could photograph, <laughs> you know. And that's how I actually started. And I start I have so many images of young black males, a few women, 
that aspired to be rappers. And a lot of them never made it though. But I was really, I really wanted to know the culture. I was around guys that I didn't even know that were um, drug dealers, believe it or not. Like as someone who's so shy, how would you begin that conversation with these people who were rappers, who were, I know you didn't know, but drug dealers and just people from in a world that you had not been raised in and people you didn't know? Being young and naive, I just started going into the community to try to get to know the people in the community. And that's how it started. And I told them what I wanted to do. I told them that I wanted to photograph them. And basically, I was actually photographing them for CD covers and promotional covers. So I guess it was more kind of a commercial type thing with that. And all of it was portraiture. And I know one of the guys that I met, he told me, He said, well, I want you to come to our house because I want you to do a a photograph of CD cover. So I went over to the house. There was, I guess, about 10 to 12 young men that were there. And I was like, what are y'all doing? They came out with guns. That's what I was photographing. And I asked them, I said, are those real? And they looked at me and they said, where did you come from? You're like a white girl in a black body. (laughs) (laughs) so they actually took me in and I was able to photograph it because one thing is I had no fear now if I had fear it would be a different story it's just like me going into the neighborhoods right now within the protest my series called 1960 now I go into the neighborhoods and you, ha- you can't show any fear. And I think I got that from my father. I really, really do because he was the type of person, based on what my mother is telling me right now, when he saw wrong, he would speak up. You know, he was born in, he was around what, like in the 50s or 60s as a teenager and in the deep south, and he would speak up. He don't care who it was, okay? And that's how I am. I have no fear, and I want to know. I'm curious. That's so fascinating, because you're both, like, I associate shy with fear. So you're both, like, you're shy, but you also, your curiosity overrides whatever fear you may have, it sounds like. Yes, I mean, I would just look at my father. I know we were in Germany. He would come home. He had his fatigues on, and he was just so much of an upright man. I just really admired him. His persona, it was like his aura was always very confident. He, He showed boldness, confidence, okay? And I guess I gravitate to that as a girl. I mean, my mother told me this to this day, that I was his favorite as three girls. And I didn't know that. Now, I was afraid of my father. So I I find that very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What were were you afraid of? I don't know. He was a very dominant person. What I mean, not when I say dominant, he just had very firm. It's not dominant. It's very firm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And whatever he said to do, I would do it. 
Okay, so I, cause I was shy, you know what I'm saying? I, I was shy, you know, I wasn't very talkative or anything like that. Yeah. So did you, in your experience over time with going up to, I'm sure countless strangers at this point to take their photos, have, has it been, have you had negative experiences or are people pretty receptive? 99% of them are pretty perceptive. Okay. Um, one incident that I had um, photographing the 1960 Now series, I was in Baltimore when Freddie Gray passed. And I went down to West Baltimore, don't know the community at all, and got totally cussed out and said, I, we don't want you here. White people are the media. Because they saw your camera. Yes. And the only time that you come down to our communities is you want to talk about something negative. So get out. And my head was like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? And I told them this. I said, look, I know I'm not from this community. And I'm from the home of the civil rights movement, Atlanta, Georgia, and I want to tell our stories. I want to control the narrative. They looked at me and they, they shook their head, bowed their head like, yes. Mm -hmm. And this woman came up to me and she says, I'm going to tell you the truth. I just got out of jail and I don't have any money. She said, do you have any money? And I said, ma'am, I don't have any money, but I could give you a hug. And we hugged and we cried. I get emotional. That's the compassion that I have. When I photograph people, whoever they are, I have a lot of compassion. And I feel that I don't know if this is true or not because I'm, I, was, I wasn't in school, you know, I didn't go to school to be a journalist, but I do believe that they are taught to look at marginalized communities as victims. I don't look at it as victims. I look at them as humans. Yeah. That's such a powerful distinction. I want you to say more because I think that our tendency is to pity people that we see in hard circumstances. And what I hear you saying is that is not in service to anybody. And what you're about is removing that label of victim and replacing it with the label human. Because if you think about it, the narrative has always been told by the white male narrative. And, and, and actually, they're men, too. I think a woman has a little bit more sensibility, maybe a lot more sensibility than a man, okay? And I'm not saying that men cannot have that, okay? But think about how the media, how they depict these marginalized communities or people, period, okay? It's always, I think we live in a society where we, we tend to like the negative more than the positive, okay? For example, when I came to Atlanta, Georgia, 
I um, immediately went into Vine City, marginalized community, because I'm always fascinated because I never grew up around um, the culture just a totally black, okay? And I ran down to Vine City, was photographing, and finally, when I started looking at these images, um, say about years later, I said to myself, not years later, about a year, I said, I'm projecting the same thing that the media is projecting. What did you see yourself? Yeah, what were you projecting? Like when you go into marginalized communities, you always see the homeless person on the corner. You always see a black person down and out. And I was projecting those same type of imagery. So what I did was when I got out of grad school, I, you know, living in Atlanta, Georgia, I decided to turn my lens to the African-American culture in suburbia because in Atlanta, Georgia, you have a large concentrations of black folks here. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to show a different diverse, a diversity of African-American culture because, you know, through media, we all learn from each other and we really don't know each other. And all we see is marginalized communities constantly. That's being projected to us in the media. So people always think that, and this is based on my experience, is that black folks are just thugs, criminals, and everything else. So when I did the body of work, Suburbia, I won this national award at the Santa Fe Prize, Santa Fe Prize, but it's called Center now. I had to speak before 300 people that were publishers, editors, art consultants, curators. And within that, I had to show them my work. And when I showed them the work, even though I won this award, I was told that I didn't have enough signifiers in the work to show that these were Black homes. Yeah, so a signifier being anything that would indicate like art or um, images, anything that says this is a black home as compared to this is a white home. Correct. I was told by an art consultant, this looked just like my home. I don't see a difference. I had a publisher tell me that I grew up in the era of Martin Luther King, and you just don't have enough, enough signifiers in the work to show that these are black homes. And I made a little joke and said, you want to see fried chicken, collard greens, and watermelon. Mm -hmm. And he didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. So I thought that, and I, within that work, I was trying to show universal commonality because all of us are the same. We're really, we're really the same. We all um, want the same thing. What I believe is that, and it's not that I believe is what I know, is that this division amongst all of us has been created, and that's racism. We can't get past that, and that's what keeps us divided. Okay. We, yeah, go yeah. ahead. A question around that is, you mentioned earlier, Sheila, that we like the negative, that we tend towards the negative, and your really wanting to reflect more of the positive and more of our shared humanity. And I'm wondering as like the places that you're going, you're going to protest, you're going into neighborhoods where people are 
angry about another boy that was just killed. How are you able to keep coming back to, like, to keep framing the positive in the midst of that? I tell everybody this. If you can't see the beauty, everybody's talking about love right now. But if you can't see the beauty and the justice, there's no love at all. And that's what makes me go back and go back and try to tell the story that I see from a positive side versus a negative side. And I go back to suburbia. And that's why suburbia, I mean, it won an award, but a lot of people just didn't understand it. And, and, not, and that wasn't black folks. And I just couldn't, that baffled me. Why couldn't you understand that? I feel that a negative, I think a, a visual stereotype of one's culture is ingrained in one's unconsciousness. And even if they're looking at like my suburbia images, they can't connect it. How do, they cannot connect it. Our psychology is really something else. It really is. It is. And it's powerful to see how the image lets us see what we're unaware of in ourselves. Yeah. It's like, for example, and I'm, I'm, I'm going back to 1960 now. I'm photographing protest images, right? But I am not out there just clicking the shutter and trying to get the image. I'm trying to capture moments. And I purposely shot in black and white and square because I look at them as portraits. And I use depth of feel on a lot of my st stuff too because I was shooting with a portrait lens. I'm pointing to where I want you to see. Um, there was an image that's going to be on the cover of my forthcoming book, 1960 Now, um, published by Chronicle Books um, in October. The cover of the images of a young black girl, for me, she has this sorrow in her eyes, but mostly when people see it, they're saying she's angry or she's mad, okay? What it is is that she's hurt, she's traumatized. Ever since um, my ancestors have been brought over here, I don't think people really understand the trauma and the terror and the anxiety and the stress that has constantly from generations from generation has been put on our culture. And our culture don't understand that we are traumatized either. And that's what I see. I'm telling you, because when I was in the neighborhoods, it's a lot of sorrow down there. It's a lot of fear, believe it or not. These young black males feel like, I, I'll never forget when I was with Kwame Rose, he's an activist, um, Devin Allen, he's um, the well-known amateur photographer now, which is a professional photographer. His images grace the cover of time. We're at a church waiting for, um, who's that popular writer that's African-American? He's from Baltimore. Are you thinking of Ta-Nehisi Coates? Right. We were waiting. Um, he was doing a talk, and we were at this church. And I was wondering why Kwame Rose was late. 
So he finally came in like 30 minutes. He said, oh, my homeboy just got killed. I mean, it's like very numb to it because they're not used to, they don't think they're going to live up until 30 years old, believe it or not. Yeah. I, so I'm I, just saying, yeah. that's what they're constantly dealing with. If you could imagine over generations and generations and generations what we're dealing with, I mean, it's something else, okay? It's, it's really amazing to me. Yeah. You said something. I mean, it, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to hold. But you, um, one of the things that you said was you had talked about, so I'm going to give a little, a little context here and then go into the, the question you started taking your art onto the streets, out of the galleries and museums, right. onto the streets when a guerrilla street curator, I think it's Keith Slifer, Slifer? Yeah, Slifer, yes. Slifer said to you, your work has to come out of the museums and galleries, your work speaks to the people. And so you began to take it out by wheat pasting your photographs on the sides of buildings and places in urban neighborhoods. And urban communities. And one of the things that you had, a story you had sh shared was going into Coconut Grove in Miami. And this was, I believe, the work of young Americans, right? Yes, it was young Americans, right, in Coconut Grove neighborhood. Yeah. Um, Keith and I um, decided to place about 13 images and wheat paste them in Coconut Grove. And we actually didn't get permission from the start to do it. So we actually guerrilla style the first image. And we actually guerrilla style the first image at an apartment complex. And you wouldn't think anybody would be living in, in the place. And what was really interesting about it, the um, people that lived there, it was about in the evening we started um, wheat pacing the images up. And the people from the apartment that lived there came out and said, you guys are going to get in trouble. The manager's not going to like it. And they were just, they stayed a far away from us, okay, and just watching us and not seeing too much of nothing. And then the little kids were playing in, the, in front of the apartment, and, and one of them wanted to help us um, we paste some of the images up, so we allowed them to do it. But afterwards, what happened was when they saw that image, they said, thank you. We have something to look at now when we come out of our homes and don't forget about us. That was the part that really struck me. Don't forget about us. So don't forget about us. Because that, that's what ties into what you were just saying. This idea of the, the, it's the trauma. It's not, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm needing, yeah. I just. Um, I don't mean to talk about this. That's why I, I, people get emotional. What it is, is that I get inspiration from this, okay? I don't look at it. I, as a sadness it gives me energy because let me say this i feel that art is a form of activism especially at this critical that we can use at this critical time in our country to combat 
a, a, a healthy dialogue if we're willing to sit down because if we don't, this thing, this history is constantly turning over the same way, same way, same way. And we as people, we talk about safe places, but we need brave places. We need places where we can really talk about these hardcore issues. We're not all going to agree, but for me, it's so easy because I'm saying to myself, okay, everybody wants the same thing, but they have created, whoever that is, that 1%, is created that noise constantly to the masses of the people. We are so delusional, we cannot see it, and we don't want to see it. We don't want to see it. I don't know. I don't mean to go over. No, this is what this is about. I mean, seriously, like this is what this podcast is about. It's like, these are issues. I believe that art is a very powerful form of activism and, uh, and we need art for that reason. We need art for a lot of reasons, but that's definitely one of the reasons. It's interesting though, what you just said about, we don't need safe places. We need places where people can be brave. One of the women that I had interviewed that actually uh, the pod, the season that is just before in season two, Lanicia, um, she said, I don't like the word safe as creating mm-hmm. a safe space. I want to create brave spaces. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask her about that during the interview. And then there were so many other questions. I ended up never getting back to it, but it, I kept wondering, what did she mean by that? And that's, and that's exactly what you're saying. So you're saying it's not so much about safety. It's about courage, regardless of whether or not one feels safe. It's the courage. Because everybody have a lot of fear in them. I understand that. I mean, believe it or not, everybody has fear of them, fear of the unknown. Okay. The mass media has put out and, you know, and it's constantly been like that. What is it, the um, Census Bureau, talking about how whites are going to be last on the totem pole? Now you start spreading that. You start spreading that. Everybody's getting anxiety. Oh, my God. It's going to be um, what the, I think is the largest going to be people of color that are, are mixed, the Latinos, the Asian. Right. And everybody wants to stay on top. And I'm telling you, the United States is very divisive with all of us. And we can't seem, can't seem to get through that. But I do believe through art, it can help. I tell everybody this. You can't see what's invisible. And what I'm doing is showing you through art what have I seen through my eyes. And we can't run from the past because if we constantly run from the past, all this chaos is constantly is just overturning, overturning, and overturning. And I was um, nominated for the Ted Prize. And they said, you have to think about something big and big, whatever you want to do. I was one of the finalists. And part of what I wanted to do was have, I didn't call it this at the time, but brave spaces where I wanted young people from around the world to photograph their culture, bring their images into a 
boxcar and wheat paste them on the inside and outside and take that like for example if somebody was in atlanta georgia would take that in rural america you know images from from the um, black communities take it and then we bring our food and we sit and we have discussions about this mm. i wanted to do it around the world that was my big idea and and I, and I think we can do that. Like, for example, there's a lot of gentrification going on in the country. And I've talked to people in the community, and they're terribly upset because, number one, they're being displaced. And the ones that are not being displaced, they are looked at when the when the gentrifiers come into, you know, to come into the community, they look down on them. And they don't know the culture. They don't know the history of the community and stuff. So I thought about why don't, when they come into the community, the people that are already in the community, everybody gets some cameras. We got iPhones. I mean, you know, smartphones. Everybody take pictures of their community, even the new ones that are coming in. Put those on, in the wall, on the wall, not on your devices, Cook your food and everybody come together and let's have a talk. I want to ask you about this like power of image because this relates to what you're talking about. You had gone back to get your MFA and you did it, you said, to help you understand how to be conceptual, how to research, because you really didn't understand the power of the image and how underlying images, how underlying layers of an image can affect one's perception. So the first question I have about that is, what do you mean underlying layers of an image? And then how does that affect one's perception? You know what's so funny about the whole thing with that? My father is the one that told me there's something about the photography that you like, and I'm going to put you through school and to get my MFA. And I'll bring you back to when I was photographing the rap culture. I'm photographing black males with guns, right? I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's real cool and stuff. These are real cool. <laughs> so when I went to enter into grad school at Georgia State University, I'm thinking I have some cool images. and They all just looked at me, okay? It wasn't until I entered grad school to understand the history of black bodies and how they were looked upon uh, as, as a stereotype. So if you see a black male with a gun, okay, and if you see a white male with a gun, it's gonna bring on two different personas. I was told by, uh, um, I did a body of work called Gold Rush, where I photographed when I first came to Atlanta, I, I photographed black males because they were getting all the gold in their teeth. And I'm like, why are they getting all this gold in their teeth? So I would go hang out in, in, in Five Points in Atlanta, Georgia, and there would be lines outside the door. So I go and I start talking and asking them why. And they start, well, my brother came home. The girls like it. <laughs> and so, and I, and Finally, I'd ask them, well, will you, I want to take your photograph. I said, close your eyes, open up your mouth. They said, you want us to do what? I said, close your eyes and open up your mouth. And I took these tight shots of them, black and white, and toned them blue. So I'm going back to your question now. 
So when they agreed, like you told them what to do and they're like, all right, I'll do it. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. (laughs) And it was so funny. I had a show up in California. This was earlier on and a young white girl said this 18 years old. She said, anytime I see an image of a black male, I don't care if he's in a suit or whatever. I think of thug criminal out blew me away. Okay, so I'm seeing is how that power of an image is ingrained in one's unconsciousness, even though they see that. But I was told with that work, I was able to engage the audience where they didn't feel intimidated because the young black males wasn't giving them direct contact. It was like they were smiling. And then it allowed them to go and want to talk about it more. And their eyes were closed. Their eyes was closed. Oh, that's on my website. Yeah, you can see Yeah, yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them. But that's interesting that like that also in terms of not having direct contact, contact like having their eyes closed. Yeah, because a lot of times when you see uh, any black body giving you direct contact in an image and if they're looking if they're not smiling oh they're confrontational they're defiant i've been told that a lot and i'm like no i said why can't it be confidence yeah yeah so in talking about the underlying layers of an image that's what you mean in in terms of like using the example of the the gold grill like just that we don't realize how mm-hmm. affected we are by all these different images or I just want to see, I'm not sure if I'm missing something. Yeah, you're right. Because I think about suburbia. They didn't think my suburbia was real. I was told when I was up in New York by gallery owners, um, we never heard of your suburbia. <laughs> mm. Why didn't you call it black suburbia? Why didn't you call it African-American suburbia? And I was told by a gallerist that told me, I don't see anything in it. I want, we want to see you like maybe portraits of you new with a change around you or whatever. That blew me away. That's the stereotype. Another man that I had interviewed, Greg Deal, who is Native American, he said, that a woman interviewed him and he gets this a lot saying, asking him about his native American art. And he said, you know, if no one says to a white man, tell me about your white man art. Like, you know, it's, we come into the conversation totally unaware of how much we're bringing, how many stereotypes we bring into the conversation. So I feel like that was one of the reasons that it was so powerful to have this conversation with you, because like you say, you're taking these portraits so that we start to see people, black men, young people, that we see them not as the stereotypes that we have, but as the humans that they are. Right, right. Yeah, because... um Because I, I keep going back to suburbia. That was the whole point of suburbia okay to show universal commonality but nobody's got it they said they didn't get it (laughs) because it didn't look different okay 
So when are we gonna come to that point to really engage? I mean, we all have our own ideologies and stuff and how we were raised and stuff. And a lot of times we can't, we can't throw that out, okay? And that's why, like you were talking before, I, I feel that art can be used that way. And that's how I would like to use my, my art, you know? We have so much social movements going on right now. You know, the Parkland students, the Me Too, Black Lives Matter. All of that is like a protest within a protest within a protest. And everybody yeah. is yelling out. But I don't think everybody's listening to each other. I believe that we are still on in our own little tribes. We're not coming together. I remember when I started the project for, for 1960 now, and I was wheat pacing um, young American images in Atlanta. And that's when Trayvon Martin happened. And I was like, wow. I said, it's going to take young people to bring about change. And so that's when I started looking at the elders that changed the face of the nation, which was members of the civil rights movement. But I wanted to know who the unknown members were. Well, this was something I, I had a question for you around this, because one of the things you'd said about 1960 now was you said, I'm trying to bring generations together because the youth do not feel that the elders understand them or want to understand them. But what it is, is that the elders had their time. They need to step aside and listen to the youth. So mm -hmm. you're, you're going to the elders, you're taking images, you're taking photographs of them because you want to recognize the ones who were unrecognized. Correct. And, and at the same time, you're acknowledging the fact that this is the time for youth to step up and they need to be, their voices need to be heard. So in all of this, like with everything you're talking about, about we need to see the humanity and our, what's common and what we have together, how did the elders and the youth come together? How do we bridge those generation gaps so that we appreciate the wisdom of the elders while giving voice to the youth? Well... That's a good question because I learned so much with these elders that I never knew about in the civil rights movement. And that's what these young people, if they can, learn from them. Because I've actually learned from them. And so what I decided to do, and, and I didn't realize that I was going in this direction when I was photographing the elders and I wheat paste them on walls, I said to myself, I need to go to the ground to find out what's going on. And I started engaging with the young people. Now, the young people do have their time because things have changed, but that concept has not changed at all. Because, for example, Technology today with the young people is, is so much better than it was when the members of the civil rights movement, what took them like 20 years to do, it only take them a second on the internet to do. But it takes time because the young people have their way of doing it. It may not be the same, but the um, concept is the same. For example, Mr. Lonnie King, who started the Atlanta student movement. The elders back then told them, no, you're not gonna go and do these sit-ins. He said, yes, we are. So they thought they were, I don't like to use the word radical, 
but said, oh, you guys can't do this, okay? And those because moms, yeah. why, did, why didn't they want them to? Because fear. Mm-hmm. Their fear of, of, of everything, fear of messing up, up the, it's just, I could just say it's fear. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's fear. It is really fear. And then you had a lot of black businesses here in Atlanta that were doing very well. And it's economics, like what's going on right now. Okay. Right. So they went out in March and they start, Mr. King started the movement, the Atlanta Stoop movement at the black colleges. The presidents of the colleges kicked them off of campus. So moving up to now, the young people, think about when you're young, you're fearless, you know what I'm saying? Nobody can't tell me anything, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. And these young people says, we are living, this is stuff that we read in the um, history books, and we are reliving this, and we are living this. This is what my grandparents and parents went through. So they have a different way of of their strategy of being doing protest versus them. But what it is, the elders, it looks like they don't have a strategy. And that's the problem. So there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect. And what happened to, to be honest with you, Mr. King told me this, Mr. Lonnie King. He says that I think we feel your generation and this younger generation because we did not talk to you guys about the movement because we had, a, here comes again, we were, had a lot of pain. We were embarrassed. We were spit on. We had acid thrown on us. We were lynched. We were killed. And we were trying to protect you. Now, he was in the movement, and he didn't teach his kids that because they wanted to protect, okay? Mm-hmm. And didn't want us to bear the pain. My mother told me this, because when I, I, I talked to Mr. King today, he's 81 years old. I said, Mom, why didn't you never talk to us about the civil rights movement? And this is just her theory, because some parents are different. She said, I didn't want you to hate white folks. So you see that, see, see that side of it? Yeah. And so there's a disconnect. I believe that hip hop, the era that era that I was photographing in hip hop with gangster rap, they were, and I think I I can say it like this, they were the next civil rights movement's voice of the unheard because they were actually rapping about what was going on in the neighborhoods, police shooting all the crack in the neighborhood, the violence, that's what they were doing. Tupac said this. I thought if I could rap, I'm paraphrasing this, about what was going on in the neighborhoods, my people would see that and bring it up, get out of it. But what happened was it didn't happen that way. It became more glorified. So what do you see in terms of the effect of your own images? Like if that's part, in some ways, that's part of your own th- vision with photography. What effect do you see your images having? Based on my experience, because I had no idea that 1960 Now series would blow up like this, 
I feel everybody's taking protest images, but I feel that I'm bringing in generational. I want us to connect and talk to each other and have the elders understand it is the young people's time now. But with the young people, you can learn something from the elders. It may not be the same thing, you know? It may not, but the strategy would be the same because the bottom line is economics. It's economics. It was that back then, back in the 60s when Martin Luther King started um, talking about poor people and economics, that's when they shot him. He didn't, they, he, they didn't want him to talk about that. Now that black man, the power that he had with his voice to bring in people, all people. So I hope that my images can be a starting place to talk about the past, the present, the young, and the old. Because there's something that the old folks have that the young people don't have. There's something that the young people have that the old folks do not have. And we need, we definitely need both. We need to be having, we need that conversation to be taking place between generations, between people, between different cultures, between different right. colors, all of it. You, right. you mentioned how your the 1960 now just blew up. And I, I think that was, that is so amazing because one of the ways that it blew up was your Instagram account went from 800 followers right. to 60,000 in a year. Right. What do you think it is? Do you think it's that it's portraits and not protest images? Like, what do you think it is that caught so many people's attention that really just had it blow up like that? I think it's the, 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 it's the world we live in right now with social media platforms. It's a different form of activism now. You know, back then it was um, TV. Mr. King told me it wasn't until Bloody Sunday at Selma where they saw people from around the world saw that. And then that's when a lot of people more start engaging with them. And I feel that through social media now, as an artist or a journalist, you can curate your own work um, in the media. I mean, on, on uh, especially on the Instagram platform. And I can give you an example. Devin Allen, the young African-American male that was an amateur at the time, he, I, he took the photographs of the uprising. I wasn't there that particular day because I had to go to Washington, D.C. to speak. And I didn't get back to that midnight. And he photographed the uprising. That's what the young people call it, uprising. And what a lot of people don't understand is that uprising was caused by fans that were coming out of the, um, you know, where they played best baseball and, it, you know, the stadium was downtown on the harbor. And when the fans came out, they was marching peacefully so, and they start calling them niggas and monkeys. And that's when all hell broke out. Mm. Devin was there. He took the photographs. He went immediately to the local newspapers in Baltimore, none of them would publish it. And that young man said, I'm going to curate these images on my Instagram. It caught the eye of the photo editor, of one of the photo editors from Time Magazine. And that's how he got the cover of Time Magazine. I don't know if you saw that cover. 
Um, I don't think I have. I know you've mentioned it, and I don't. I don't think I have seen it. Yeah. So Instagram. I mean, social media platforms. I think is a is an important part. But I think what's happening right now is I think we're becoming numb to all of this. You know, we're yeah. constantly seeing, and I'm gonna just use this as a reference. You're constantly seeing black bodies um, being shot down, continuing shot down by police. Um, you saw the Parkland stuff. It's constant, constant. And I feel that in order for all, I, I think we're just coming numb to that. Numb well, to it because we see it so much. It's like everybody is so, so mentally drained from that. It's like, what can we do? You know? Yeah. And well, we have these institutions. Let me say this. And I'll yeah, be please do. Please. We have these institutions where they have been run for so long in a traditional way. We have to get the old guard out and get the young people in. And that's what Bernie is doing. Because I went to the DNC, that young girl in New York, that they're calling themselves social what Democrats. And I see a surge of that going on right now because these young people are tired and they have to pull these, they have to pull it from the root. Because if you don't pull it from the root, it's going to grow back. Right. Right. So bringing your images into that, in some ways, it's like a way of breaking the numbness, you know, it's a way of waking us back up because if we're always seeing the same images right. as the same angry images, the same violent images, we get numb to it. But then if we see an image of a young black man with tears running down his cheeks, one of yours, right. uh -huh. that shifts something, right? It like, yes. it wakes us back up again. Right. I don't, I didn't like, I didn't want to photograph the images like media photograph. I, I needed to show something different. I wanted you to see the love. I want you to see the hurt and the pain, actually, of what was really going down in, in the neighborhoods at the time, because it's very emotional down there, you know, and, and people are hurting. People are really, really hurting, and they really don't know what to do, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think that is part of the numbing. So that's just one thing I want to say, and then I want to ask you a question about the emotion piece, which is, I know my daughter is 17, and she has said to me, several times now, actually, that what's hard for her, and I think it's very, it's hard for everybody, but I think young people are feeling this really strongly, is that she feels constantly hit with these images of terrible things happening all right. over the world, whether, right. especially through social media, but she's constantly hit with them, and then there's no conversations taking place. That's so the there's problem. trauma that's happening where you're taking in all of this, but not processing it. Right. Yeah. He's and, absolutely right. So speaking of that though, like how do you deal with your own emotions? How do you deal with whatever comes up for you as you're out there taking image after image, photograph after photograph and, and showing what you, you know, doing the work that you do? I think what helps me because I get exhausted too is to lecture and to have conversation about it because a lot of times when we're in these devices, we're just looking at images and think about this. We are so bombarded with images so many 
3.5 billion is, is up downloaded or uploaded, you know, every day. And it's probably more than that now. How do you, and I'm questioning myself about this. How can I bring this up to another level through a visual content about talking about this work? Okay. It's just not about the protests anymore. It's about how do I engage individuals? And I feel that I can do it because I've been down there and I've experienced. I can tell you about the woman where her and I cried and we hugged. You don't hear those stories at all. You don't hear about these young kids Believe it or not, they have a lot of fear and they're afraid, you know? I saw the eyes of the cops when um, the police officers, when I was in West Baltimore, some of them are very young too. You could see the fear with them too. There's a lot of fear on all sides, okay? So all of us are in, I don't know if this is the right word, in that vortex. We're, we're all consumed with all of this. So how are we gonna break from this? And how, how do you see yourself now using your art to break, to help break from this? Uh, my goal is to talk to the young people and the babies. I, you need to start from there because that's the only way that I think that we could bring in truly change. I'm not saying that the young people now or the older people want, but we all kind of been thrown that noise and that propaganda and if you could start having if i could if i could use my artwork to really speak to the young people because when i do speak and i go to universities people think that black lives matter is a terrorist group just like how they framed it with um the panthers back in the in the 70s that they were a terrorist group so I'm hoping to use what I have learned on the ground and through my visuals to talk about this. I want to have brave spaces. I want to go into these communities. It's not just universities. If I could do a brave space in rural America with these images, let's sit down, cook some food like Anthony Baldain, Boudin. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, put, and put our images up and let's start talking because you know what? We need to find out what unites us versus what divides us. We're so caught up on what's dividing us. It's like your daughter was saying, everybody's overwhelmed. I become overwhelmed too. But I want to take it to another level. Visual, oh, visual images are very, very powerful. Yeah. They really, really are. They are. And so how can we break that? Those are questions that I'm asking myself. And yeah. I think you have to start with the little babies and the young people. Well, and I love this, the idea of using whatever the art is, but in your case, photography, to, to say, no, I'm going to show a different kind of image. I'm going to, I may be here at this protest, but I'm not taking protest pictures. That's not mm -hmm. what I'm here for. Yeah, and I look at them as portraits, actually. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just a few last questions around as we tie up here, because I want to ask something about the business piece of it, 
for people who are young or any age for that matter, but starting to put their stuff out there. And I'm going to share two quotes of yours and then ask a question. One was, as an artist, I never thought I needed to do a body of work this way so that I can sell it. I just do what comes from me. I never thought I would sell any of it. I don't look at it that way. I just continue to produce work. You have mm-hmm. to keep beating the streets. You have to be the aggressor of one for that, and it's not easy. And then another thing around the same topic was you said you're speaking to new image makers. New image makers, form your own agency and do it. As young people or image makers, we're going to have to do the work. We form our own agencies and do it. That's what I have done in the art world because I can't sit back and cry that I don't have a gallery. I have to keep on working. So the questions that I have around that are, one, if you're not thinking about doing the body of work to make money, then where is the money piece in that for people? Like if, if that is part of life is, is making a living from your work. And then the other thing is what does that look like to keep beating the streets? And especially when you're just starting out. I think this generation have a little bit easier than when I was coming up because we didn't have social media platforms. They could put their work on Instagram. They could sell their own work. They could curate their own work. But what's going to make somebody look at your work? Okay. With me, when I talked about, I never really looked at the money. Yes, we all need money. Yes, I do need to make a living. Believe it or not, that was not in the forefront of of my thinking. Because when I got out of grad school, for example, when I started doing, um, uh, I left and went to Houston, Texas. I said I wanted to be uh, photograph rappers. Everything that I said that I wanted to do, it happened and the money came. So maybe that's why I look at it like that. As soon as I, when I was in grad school, I was winning all these awards. I was just totally shocked. I don't know if that's just luck or I don't know. When when I came out of grad school, I won this award at um, Santa Fe and there was money behind that. It's always happened that happened like that for me. I've always started a body of work with no money, and I end up getting a lot of money. I started Young Americans when I came out of grad school and end up meeting the curator at the Aetna Foundation, but through Julian Cox, which was the curator of photography at the Hyatt Museum. And he wanted to know who the photographers were in Atlanta because he just came from California from the Getty Museum. And he said, I want to help you. I've always had that with me. So my way may not be your way. Of course, yeah, I would love to have a gallery, but I can't, I have to keep on working. I have to keep on working. And I think it's just a drive that I have. And I think it's, I just, I love people. I I love the passion. The money is going to come. It's hard. I mean, I had a job before I went into grad school working at Kinko's, and that was the last job that I ever had, and I've been doing okay ever since. And a lot of these um, young people that are coming out right now, I tell them it's tough. You're going to have 
the art world and probably any business have making me so tough. Okay. It's just, it just make you tough. I have to deal with all different personalities from all different levels, even in the art world. So with the young people, I, what I suggest to them is focus on your work, produce work, start curating your work on your Instagram feed, because that's where photo editors, curators, everybody go to, to look for everybody's work now. You have to produce a body of work. It's like a record. You know what I'm saying? You got to have a series of, of work. It's no no problem with you putting selfies or anything like that on there, but use that platform if as an artist to create your own work. And one of the things that you just mentioned, Sheila, was that working in this field has made you tough. And I'm curious if there are any specific lessons learned and dealing with so many different types of people the personalities of people <laughs> you know it's it's so amazing I, I have to give you an example it's like when um i receive a, a, a large money from the etna foundation and i'll never forget when julian cox the curator me just coming out of school like i came out in 2003 and i think it was in 2006 when i started this body of work it was unusual to have someone just coming out of school having a solo show at a museum and you have to deal with a lot of personalities. I had to deal with the directors. I had to deal with the curators. I had to deal with a whole bunch of people. And some of them, they are, they will let into you and you think that they're talking bad to you, but they're being very tough with you. Okay. You have to get over it. <laughs> i never forget when Julian told me when we went up to Aetna, because Aetna Foundation couldn't give me the artist the money because they have to run it through a nonprofit. So they decided to do an artist residency at the Wadsworth Museum. And they did a big kickoff of me coming down there. Julian was there. The people from the foundation and president of Aetna was there. And afterwards, Ed, um, Julian looked at me dead in my eyes and said, now it's all on you. And I knew that I had to perform. Perform in that moment or perform from that perform moment? Perform of getting the work done. Got it. Because I was down there, didn't know anybody. I mean, I knew the people at the museum, but I had to get uh, the work done. And I had less than a month. And then I had to go in and be bold to the director and say, look, I need another month because you didn't do so-and-so, so-and-so. It's something else. I, I remember when a, a gallerist came to me and wanted to represent me, and I was so worn out because um, that was right after the show at 1960 Now, and I've heard all these horror stories uh, about her. And I went to her. I gathered all my little stuff that I did. I'm the one that paid for ads in the magazine and everything and I set it on her table and you had to have guts and I told her this I said this is all I've done what can you do for me it's a business I don't know and that's not 
what's taught to us coming out of school. Now, I didn't go to school um, for arts, okay? I went and got my MFA, but they don't teach you about the business side of anything. I tell everybody I was on the job learning, and I'm still on the job learning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Wow. Um, this, this has been great, and I want to tie it up with just a few last one last question and tell people where to find you. So let me do that. And um, the best place to see all of Sheila's photographs are on her website, which is Sheila pre bright. That's S H E I L A P R E E bright.com. And this will be in the show notes. And then if you want to see a lot of images from 1960 now and um, everything that's connected to 1960 now, then go to the in Sheila's Instagram, which is at she pre P R E E bright at she pre bright. And then the, so the last thing I do before asking my final question is to share gratitude. And I'm, I have been extremely moved throughout much of this interview. I, um, one thing about you is what you say is shy and I get it. I get that there's a shyness there, but it's like, um, it's almost like in the same way that people see anger in the, in the faces and you see pain and you want to share the pain and the fear and what's true underneath the anger that everyone is seeing. I feel like the shyness is like the, is underneath that is this heart that can hold the world. Like you go into these places where you bring all of your heart, you bring all of what you've taken in over the years through your incredible ability to observe and through your compassion and you give that in service of the people that you're photographing and you give that in service of the world that you want to create and that you want to live into and you give that in service to all of us despite the fact that it's really hard, that it can be overwhelming, that it's very emotional, you keep this heart so big and then do the work that you need to do, keeping your heart wide open. And so I'm very, very grateful for that. Yeah, I'm very humble and very honored for you to interview me. And I thank you for having an ear to listen. And maybe this will be a start for us to move forward as a nation. Uh, may it be, may it be. And so the last question is, what do you want, since who you wanna to speak to at this point is primarily young people, and I think that's very needed, what as someone who is, who does have the wisdom that you have from the life experience that you have, what do you want to say right now with this platform to 
young people and to those of us who maybe aren't as young, but are listening and want to hear it? Off the top of my head, I want to say, keep your heads up. Um, and that we're going through difficult times, but there's going to be some better times. We, sometimes we have to go through hard times in order to learn. You know what they talk about, that tough love? And I think that's what all of us is going through with this new um, era that we're going into. We're going into a, a, a change. And it's difficult because a lot of people don't like change. But believe me, I believe that we're going to get this and do this. And I thank you. Thank you so much, Sheila. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm Daphne Cohn, and you've been listening to the Creativity Habit Podcast. For more conversations with brave and experimental artists, head on over to thecreativityhabit.com. You can follow the Creativity Habit on Instagram, and you can support the podcast and the artists on it by going to iTunes Podcasts and subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. Reviewing does take a few minutes, and you do need to be subscribed. But the more reviews, the more folks know about all these incredible artists and makers who are doing such beautiful work in the world. So thank you for taking a couple minutes of your time to share your thoughts over at iTunes. And then join me next week for another Creativity Habit podcast. Thank you for listening.